Hello, hello, hello. So before I go into today's brand new episode of the podcast, I just want to let you guys know that the next intake of the female fat loss program for September is now open and it will start on Monday the 5th of September. So just in time for when the kids go back to school and you'll be back into your normal routine. So it'll be the perfect time for you to get back into things if you've been kind of putting things off for when the kids are off. So what does the female fat loss program actually entail? It's a six week program and it's completely tailored to you with your tailored training. It's perfect for if you wanted to use gym workouts, home workouts, doesn't matter what equipment you have, it can be tailored to you, whether it be bodyweight workouts, whether it's gonna be dumbbell workouts or kettlebell workouts. There's not any hit, it's just literally going to be resistance training and it will get you the results you're looking for. So there'll be demonstrations with videos on this as well. There'll be calories and macros set for targets for you that are tailored to you. There'll be education, training and nutrition around your cycling time of the month and how to work make that work for you you have a choice of the actual preference or home or gym workouts depending on what you have time for there's free recipe books as well the brownies are absolutely amazing so i definitely get get involved in those the recipe books are not a meal plan the, i don't do meal plans dietitians are literally the only people on this earth that are allowed to give meal plans everyone else is just googling it up so it's not a meal plan it's my fitness pal friendly recipe books so if you scan the barcode on the bottom of the page on the actual recipe book itself it will populate the, the, the ingredients and the calories for you into my fitness pal for you which is saves the hassle which is a bit that no one really likes in my fitness pal anyway so then we've got a facebook group which is where we will do our weekly q a's where we have our group and you'll have interaction there you'll have interaction with me and then we'll have our weekly check-ins as well and on that the check-ins will be done via email and you will have to fill in your check-in on a Monday and then on a Tuesday you will get feedback from myself so that everyone that's come through the program so far has had an amazing time so how do you know if this program is for you it's someone who's looking to educate and learn and get the results they're looking for that they've never actually tried to get or get the results they've actually tried to get then there's also someone who's looking for education around their cycle and how the body works for them rather than letting their body run their lives it's being a part of a like-minded group who can support and work with each other and that's the biggest feedback that's come through it is i can't believe how simple 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 it is one and i can't believe that the tactics that you use with us and teach us is so simple and it's really easy to do the other feedback that's come through is the weekly accountability is amazing the other support that's come in and the other feedback that's come through is the amazing support network that people have in the group and they've seen massive changes with that as well so if this is for you the next one starting on the 5th of September and the price is 169 for six weeks. So the group link is in the actual write-up of this episode itself. And then you've got one-to-one coaching as well. So there is a difference. The link for one-to-one coaching is different to the female fat loss program. So if you want to sign up for the female fat loss program that is starting on the 5th of September, click the link in the actual write-up or click the link in the bio, pop me any questions, but the best way is to apply for it and your program will be sent over to you the Friday before you start and you can ask any questions. Looking forward to seeing you guys in there and I will talk to you very soon. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, hello. So I am very, very excited for today's episode. It is with the amazing David Robson. So David is an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. 
So after graduating in a degree in maths from Cambridge University, he worked as a features editor at New Scientist for five years before moving to BBC Future, where he was a senior journalist for five years. He has also written for the likes of The Guardian, The Atlantic, Men's Health and other media outlets also. And the reason why I wanted to get David on the podcast today was I read David's second book, The Expectation Effect, how your mindset can tr- transform your life. And it's probably been one of my favorite books of 2022. Like I do a good bit of reading and it, it's one of those books that I think is, will try to break down a few things for you. And what we talk about and what he talks about in that book is the power of reframing, the limiting beliefs that we have that can co- almost create stories, the scarcity mode that we do with food, the relation to the link with obesity, and finance that we have as well the expectation with pms we talk about a, a particular story about one of the cases in the book in relation to sarah and regaining her sight we also talk about the indulgence is healthy for, for is, is good for healthy eating in relation to that side of things as well visualization and the impact it has with athletes like michael phelps like it's a really really amazing book and i'd highly recommend everyone to to get it he also has another amazing book called the intelligence trap which was published in 2019 but i would highly recommend people to get the expectation effect and give that a listen on audible or on amazon so the link is in the show notes for where you can get that book and i hope you guys enjoy the the podcast with david david how are we sir yeah really good thanks yeah it's a pleasure to be on your show Thank you so much for coming on and a massive congratulations again on the book. I know we were talking about it all fair. Like it's it's a it's a massive undertaking and, and you should be hugely proud of it because I would say it's one of the top books that I've read in 2022 and I read a lot of books. Oh, really? Well, yeah, that's lovely to hear. I mean, one of the pleasures of having written it is to appear on this kind of show to kind of chat about it. No, and I appreciate you coming on as well. So for anyone who isn't aware of your background and what you do for a day-to-day living and how the idea about of the of the book, The Expectation Effect, kind of came around, can you kind of give us a little bit more background? Yeah, sure. So I'm a science writer. I have been for like more than 10 years now. I was a feature editor at New Scientist magazine, which is like a big um, science magazine in the UK, then a senior journalist at the BBC, where I also specialised in Uh, covering uh, neuroscience and medicine. Um, I'd written a previous book, The Intelligence Trap, but today we'll be talking about my second book, The Expectation Effect, which um, examines all of the ways that our beliefs can shape our kind of important outcomes in life, how we create self-fulfilling prophecies. And that can be in medicine with the famous placebo effect, but also with fitness, dieting, or even aging and how long you live. So yeah, it's based on, you know, more than 450 peer-reviewed articles. It's, you know, not kind of woo-woo bullshit. It's like, you know, really good yeah. science, evidence-based. Yeah, and we like evidence-based here, so it's it's uh, it's all good. So, no, I think there's there's so much in what you've said, and I think we'll start off what I kind of do on a day-to-day basis, which is health, nutrition, that side of things. And you mentioned the word stories that we and self-professing prophecies that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. How much of a link to what we believe, like say if someone started trying to start out a new fitness regime and they tell themselves they don't like running, how much of an impact does that have on the ability of the person to actually see progress or stick to that? I think it has a huge amount of influence. And 
you know, there's one study that immediately comes to mind. That's from Stanford University. Um, and essentially, they invited these students into the lab, um, gave them a kind of endurance test to start with on the treadmill, and then also gave them a genetic test, which was um, looking at the CREB1 gene. So we know that has an influence on endurance. That it um, can influence things like, a, you know, your body temperature as you're exercising, how comfortable you feel, your kind of perception of exertion and also actually you know how long you can run without becoming exhausted so quite important um what the researchers did then was they gave sham feedback so they took a real test the participants but then they received sham feedback that didn't actually necessarily reflect their true genetic potential and what the researchers found was that on a subsequent endurance test on the treadmill that that expectation actually had a huge effect on their performance if they felt like they were just like not genetically um, predisposed to doing exercise you know they had worse endurance they found the exercise more uncomfortable but also they kind of showed worse signs on all of these physiological measures of fitness so things like the gas exchange within the lungs uh, the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen was actually less efficient for these people who had the negative expectations of their genetic potential. And what I find interesting with that was there's actually an interaction with the genes themselves. And what you found was that on some of these measures, like the gas exchange in the lungs, the expectations were actually more important than the CREB1 gene. So it didn't matter what variant they were having, the expectation of whether they were kind of able to do this endurance exercise was actually what was really powering their performance. Are people fitter than they actually realize when it comes to things? Because I know when someone's kind of comes to me and they're kind of like, they're going like, there's someone who I would kind of say is kind of like a beginner level that's never really set foot in a gym. And if they're trying to start out in a regiment, they're kind of like, well, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And they're like, well, I'm not fit enough to do this. How much of a link does that have with our psyche before we even start anything? Because it, it is a massive hurdle that people can kind of put up straight away yeah exactly and so that's what I think this uh, kind of experiment shows in a way is that you know we might all be carrying different expectations of our kind of natural potential for exercise and I know that you know I used to have like good intentions to do exercise but I really found it tough at the gym and I, I was carrying a lot of baggage from like my childhood when I was um you know like the smallest guy in my year because I was like the youngest kid in the year and you know always found PE really difficult always finished like last in races you know all of that kind of thing so I'd carried like with me throughout life this idea that I just was not cut out for exercise and then I was going to the gym and it was like I basically had the same mindset as those people who'd been given the negative feedback in that experiment you know I just thought I don't have the genes for this so I'm going to find it harder and I did find it harder um but then by changing that mindset and actually just, you know, picking apart these underlying beliefs and being like, you know, I can't be like so much worse than the average person, really. Like, you know, I don't have any disabilities or anything. There's no real reason why I should find exercise so hard. I'm just kind of opening my mind to the possibility that actually my mindset was creating these effects on my physiology. That actually then changed my whole experience of going to the gym. So I've begun to feel... Um, you know, much more comfortable doing this exercise. It was much more pleasurable. Um, and I also just saw then my uh, my kind of performance like increasing, you know, incrementally, but like there was a definite progress that I hadn't seen before. And so I think that is a sign of an expectation effect. And I wasn't going into the gym suddenly expecting miracles, thinking that I was going to be like immediately 
as good as an Olympic athlete or that I could ever reach that level. But, you know, the scientific objective fact is that anyone who goes to the gym can improve. You know, you put in the work and you should improve. Um, and that we can see this kind of day-to-day -day trajectory. And, you know, by like just trying to focus on that positive potential for improvement rather than always kind of beating myself up about my current performance, um, that was just transformative for me. And that kind of links in with the next question in relation. That sounds like positive reinforcement or reframing in what you're kind of talking about. Was that something that you had to work on yourself or was it something that you learned while you were writing the book or was it something that you would learn from potentially going for CBT or therapy in the back in the background? Mm, yeah, no, it's definitely something I learned from uh, writing the book, essentially, that, you know, so many expectation effects uh, kind of get their power from reframing. So, you know, again, it's not about kind of setting yourself these really unrealistic, yeah. like over-optimistic expectations, but it's often just changing the way you see the facts of the situation. And, you know, I was essentially doing that. I was like, just actually appraising, you know, what is the actual scientific truth here about my performance? And it's like, I thought I could look at myself as being inherently unfit. And, you know, all of those, that kind of fatigue I was feeling at the gym, you know, my muscles aching, feeling out of breath, you could see I could see as signs of my lack of fitness and signs of failure. Or I could just flip it and be, well, like, actually, I'm experiencing all of these kind of symptoms of fatigue because I'm actually pushing my body to its current limit. And it's only by pushing my body to that limit that I can then exceed that limit in the future. So that's what reframing is, really. It's, you know, I was turning these kind of uncomfortable situations, uh, um, uncomfortable um, feelings into something positive, something that was actually a sign of progress. I really like that kind of side of things of what you mentioned in the book as well, of like you're comparing yourself, you're not comparing yourself to other people, but you're kind of like looking at, right, this is where I am. I could be fitter tomorrow or the next day. And that's what my new starting point is. And it kind of links into that because I think a lot of people are like, as you said, we're going to talk about social media in a little bit, but we're always looking at other people. We're kind of like, well, I want to look like that, but we're not prepared to do the work to get to that point. Also, we shouldn't need to want to look like that either. That person, because we don't know what they've done to get there. They could be taking drugs. They could be restricting. They could be doing loads of different things in the background. Like it, it's, a, it's a massive thing. And I know with kind of like athletes, and I know the European Championships are on over uh, in Germany at the minute. And I know I was watching the 100 meters, uh, the finals yesterday for the men and the women. And I was watching the, the men's in particular because there was an Irish guy in it. I was watching the 100 meters guys come out. And they all had like these kind of like WWF or WWE kind of entry themes and kind of like they were doing silly things. And I was watching them kind of come out and they were all doing different things. But one of them was very like, I think it was, I think it's the Olympic champion, the Italian guy. He's very visual. He kind of like puts his hands up to his eyes and makes like this, like a, a plane is landing to his hands, to his eyes. And like, I can only see the lane. How important is that visualization element to sport? And like, I know you've used the likes of Michael Phelps as mm -hmm. one of the examples in the book. And even to the point of if someone's looking to lift in the gym, how of an how much of an impact the visualization thing can be. Can you kind of talk about, about that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hugely important. And I think with that Italian guy that you're talking about, you know, actually just like getting in the zone and like not thinking about your competitors can be really powerful just because if you, you're feeling psyched out by the other people, just blanking them is the best thing you can do. But with visualization in general, yeah, like 
there's a lot they can achieve. Um, and it all comes from this idea of the brain being this kind of prediction machine. Um, so, you know, this, this comes from a huge amount of neuroscience that the brain is always kind of simulating, um, you know, what's happening around you, what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, that's really important in the sensory perception because those simulations actually shape, you know, the signals that are coming in from your body and helping you to interpret them. But also it's really important in doing things like planning your movements. So, you know, this prediction machine is kind of looking at, you know, what your current resources are, what the challenges of, you know, this race that you're going to do, what those challenges are going to be. And it's weighing up the resources and the challenges and trying to then plan your movements so you can kind of, you know, do as well as you can without risking exhaustion. Um, now, what visualisation does is it helps to recalibrate some of those simulations a bit and just kind of um, gently expand what the brain thinks the body can achieve. Because um, the fact is the prediction machine is generally going to be conservative because it's better to kind of underperform but avoid exhaustion rather than overperforming and you know risking injury um, and with these visualizations actually you're just stretching that kind of boundary a bit further and then that's having an effect on the motor cortex it's helping to plan movements that might be a bit more strenuous a bit you know you might be uh, recruiting more muscle fibers uh, within your limbs to kind of achieve that and this is exactly what the research shows. So, you know, in the experiment that you mentioned, you know, there were kind of uh, these students who were asked to just kind of visualise lifting a heavy object every day for a few minutes, for a few weeks, um, each day for a few weeks. Um, and what they found was that, you know, just that visualisation exercise without any actual kind of trips to the gym, that that actually boosted their strength in their limbs by about 10%. So, you know, a pretty good gain for not having done any exercise. And the control group who didn't do the visualisation and didn't go to the gym, they actually became a little bit weaker. So there was a very strong difference between the two groups. Um, and, you know, that that is just, you know, retuning your prediction machine uh, through this kind of expectation effect. And then, you know, people like Mal Michael Phelps, it's only anecdotal, but he definitely said he's used this in his swimming. He would kind of imagine every race in detail, that like every tiny little turn he would be visualising. And, you know, that was just helping his brain to make sure that he made the most efficient movements possible to achieve his fastest speed. Yeah, I remember, re I remember reading that or seeing that somewhere in relation to Michael Phelps, like each stroke he would kind of go through in his head before the race and kind of like be present with that moment. And that's the hardest part. Most people struggle to be present in general. So yes. to be able to kind of bring that awareness to yourself in relation to eating and like nutrition is kind of like the, 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 the big one that kind of I work with clients on a lot is one of the sentences that you said was it kind of like indulgence is essential for healthy eating can you kind of talk about what you mean by that because i think when people think indulgence it kind of i have a picture of like henry the eighth in my head oh, of what indulgence is but can you talk about why indulgence is, is essential for healthy eating yeah sure so i mean it all comes back to the prediction machine again but um essentially you know if you think about your gut you're like you're the whole of your digestive system like it does have sensors that can broadly tell like you know how much you've eaten what nutrients you've ingested but it's like a really fuzzy ambiguous signal so the prediction machine does a lot of work in trying to simulate you know what it thinks you've actually eaten and then helping that helps it to interpret those signals coming from your gut um now uh essentially like you know our memories of what we've eaten and our expectations of the calories and the nutrition that was contained in that meal 
are going to influence the prediction machine's simulations, which will in turn influence how it interprets the signals from our body. Um, and that's why, you know, like our attitudes to food can be so important in controlling things like appetite and um, satisfaction. And there's loads of work on this. So, you know, some of it comes from research on memory, like amnesic patients who, you know, can't form new memories. Like if they eat a whole meal and then you take the plate away, uh, wait a minute for them to have forgotten you know, what they've eaten, you give them another plate and they will just eat, you know, eat the whole dinner again without any real change in their kind of satisfaction or appetite because they just, you know, without these kind of um, memories to put the, the signals from the gut in context, you know, their appetite doesn't change essentially even after having eaten two or even three meals. So it's quite remarkable how powerful the brain is in determining things like appetite and hunger. Um, now, what the, the indulgence comes into this, because when we're dieting, you know, I think the temptation is always like to almost uh, act as if you're like punishing yourself. You know, you've put on a bit of weight and then you feel guilty about that. You feel shame. So you want to kind of punish yourself. And so the foods that you choose might be like, you know, low in calories, which is the way to lose weight. But they just might be really unappealing too. And you don't really care because it's kind of an act of penance. You know, you're only focusing on what they're lacking rather than what they have. Um, now that, you know, is completely screwing with these predictions that the, the mind is making. Um, because it's essentially telling your, your brain and your body that you're kind of going into this uh, kind of starvation mode. It's a mindset of deprivation. Um, and so that's changing then how you interpret your, you know, feelings after you've eaten so, you know, you feel that you haven't had enough, you haven't had enough to feel satisfied, so that later on, you're going to feel hungrier, you know, you're going to want to snack more, you might actually end up eating more calories than you would have normally, because you're so tempted to kind of reach for the cookie jar. Um, and we know that loads of things can, can do that, like, if you, you know, eat a meal that is labelled, or like a health shake that's labelled as being uh, kind of healthy and sensible, you end up feeling hungrier than if you eat exactly the same milkshake that's labelled, you know, indulgent, decadent, luxurious, full of ice cream, full of calories. You know, those labels create a mindset that then influence not just your hunger, but also then things like the hormonal response of the body. So things like the hunger hormone ghrelin are really sensitive to our expectations. And if you, you eat a food, even if it's got you know, a fair number of calories, but you believe that it's this kind of um, uh, you know, unsatisfying, like deprived meal, you're gonna have higher levels of that hunger hormone that stimulates appetite. So it's really, really profound. Yeah, because I can, I can, I, I think the definition of what dieting is is a little bit off, and what people think is like deprivation, starvation, <laughs> restriction. I'm gonna lick a carrot. That's what they think dieting is, but it doesn't have to be that thing for an awful lot of people. And I think, as you said, if you if someone was kind of having chicken and broccoli, would be kind of like the bodybuilding kind of method that a lot of people think that they need to be doing on a day to day basis. And that like you're gonna want the more um highly palatable foods like chocolate and sugar and all that kind of stuff more if you're not having it so do you believe that there's a lack of education in relation to the awareness around nutrition or yeah 
No, I do. I mean, I think like, um, you know, you see these surveys of like eating competence and people just aren't very good at knowing. It's not just knowing what foods are healthy, but also knowing kind of how to deal with their own needs, but kind of, you know, to not just to satisfy their hunger, but to satisfy their pleasure as well, like their need for pleasure in the foods that they're eating. So, um, and this is something that I think I'd really like to, you know, help people to change when they're reading my book is that realizing that actually, you know, if you're dieting, you should still be looking for the foods that do give you pleasure. It's just almost like a, a question of, you know, controlling those portions and, and, you know, adding things that can actually create more pleasure. So you might choose a meal that's kind of lower calories, but you can also add like things that enhance the flavors, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like for me, just adding something like anchovies that have like a really umami flavor, like they're really not adding many calories to what you're eating, but they do enhance the satisfaction. Um, you know, making it hot and spicy, like that can also just be a way of making, like making sure that it's a sensual experience that then leaves you feeling more satisfied later. So, you know, if I'm, I don't often diet actually because I'm, you know, pretty much the way I want to be. Um, but like if I, you know, do want to come back for a few days, even like something like a bowl of broccoli can actually be super satisfying. But I think I do need to have, you know, other stuff mixed with it, like anchovies or chili flakes or whatever, that are just going to make it feel like more of a celebration and less of like an ordeal just to kind of, you know, to lose weight, essentially. There was a list that you had in the book of like, I think it was like four types or four or five types of food and you had like particular measurements but if you can remember those, it would be amazing. But I try to remember it was like something like a Greek yogurt, chocolate, uh, Reese's or something like that in there. And the expectation was that, the, are you aware what I'm talking about? Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of elaborate. I'm not telling the story very well. Yeah, no, I can't remember exactly um, which foods they were. But say like, um, I think it was like, you know, you might, if you're on a diet, you might be like, well, I'll have a couple of bananas rather than yeah. a couple of Oreos. But actually those couple of bananas, like, I mean, they're good for you in different ways. Like, you know, they're like, you know, bananas are going to give you more fiber. You know, you're going to have like um, more vitamins in them. But if you're just looking at calories, um, they have like loads more calories than the Oreos. And um, the problem here is not, you know, that we should be eating bananas and Oreos. But the problem is that if you're on a diet, you might be eating these um you know, these other snacks and assuming that they're really low in calories. And then that's going to leave you feeling hungrier later on because you just assume they're not packed with so many, you know, so much energy. Um, and it's not just like making the conscious um, calculation. I think that's what's really important. It's actually that just like unconsciously, if you're assuming things are low calorie, then you're going to have more ghrelin flowing in your body. You're going to feel hungrier. You're going to then snack even more later on. So it's all it's all about actually just understanding kind of what your food contains and then calibrating your expectations according to that, rather than just making these assumptions, which are often, as that survey that you mentioned showed, are often way out. People just aren't very good at knowing kind of how much energy your food contains. Yeah, I think that it, it is like the, the education definitely needs to be improved because I know when people, and I know I hear it on a daily basis, when people are, those who are counting, they enter in. I didn't realize that, like particularly with peanuts. I think peanuts are the one that surprises most people. They're like, 100 grams, this could easily be 400 odd calories. Depends on the size of peanut. And then 100 gram of something else could be like 120 calories. And it would have been better bang for your buck if you're looking for a protein source, if you know what I mean. But the education isn't there. People don't know how to, or haven't been taught how to read a food label. because yeah. And even the food labels that are out there aren't accurate. 
and even the food labels that are out there are can be misleading. They're leaving certain things out or they're warping some of the numbers. And there's research done on that as well. Um, in relation to like, can you talk about scarcity mode in relation to the types of food? Because I got asked a question. I was talking about this with one of the, the clients this morning in relation to scarcity mode that when we got kind of like for instance stress you mentioned stress in the book and how to kind of the expectation around that that when some people they get stressed they tend to overeat and some people will undereat but majority of people will overeat and this kind of like scarcity mode mindset kind of comes in can you talk about that link and what can be done in reframing terms how to kind of like reword that to ourselves internally in the dialogue yeah i mean like I think the scarcity mode is like super important and also a bit under research when it comes to dieting. But you're, you know, what you said is like absolutely right as far as my understanding goes. And also it can be affected by things like, um, you know, uh, kind of economic stress, like financial stress, which I think is going to be increasingly important yeah, in the next few years. Um, you know, the research had shown there that actually, you know, they took a bunch of participants in South Korea and just kind of gave them this kind of exercise that was meant to predict kind of where they, you know, kind of how they would eventually kind of fit into um, South Korea's society, like whether they would be high status or low status and have a good job or, you know, really be struggling. Um, and then again, they gave them like these milkshakes and measured their ghrelin. Um, and, you know, some of the students were, you know, kind of predicted to be like high status, others were going to be low status and were going to feel like they were really struggling. And that had the effect on the ghrelin level. So if they felt like they uh, were going to, you know, really struggle throughout life, what they found was that actually the ghrelin tended to be expressed at much higher levels, so stimulating that appetite, um, making them more inclined to kind of eat more snacks later on. Um, and I think like from an evolutionary point of view, maybe that made sense in the past. It's like if you feel kind of threatened by the people around you and you're worried that your resources are going to be cut off, um, you know, it's better to kind of try to bulk up now and like store lots of calories because you just don't know if they're going to be available in the future. But, you know, our society is slightly different. Um, we... You know, like, and actually, a lot of the foods that are the cheapest are also the ones that are maybe most likely to kind of cause problems with obesity. Um, so I think that's really the issue here with when when you're put in that scarcity mode, maybe through circumstances that are completely beyond your control. It's kind of priming your mind and your body to kind of to become overweight, to store up a lot of fat. Um, and so that's, you know, the worst thing if you're trying to diet is you don't need, you know, external factors to make it much harder for you. Um, in terms of escaping that scarcity mode, um, you know, that, I, I do think that is really tough if there are all of these external circumstances kind of acting against you. But I do think, you know, like we were talking about kind of eating competence and just kind of being more aware of, you know, what foods are going to give you the nutrition that you need and feeling more kind of agency over what you're eating i think that that could be a good place to start i love that i think you mentioned there about kind of the link with kind of socioeconomic backgrounds as well and the fact that like right now we're potentially going into or already or already in a financial crisis like there's a massive disparity between the really wealthy and the really poor and 
there are links between kind of those who are on lower economic backgrounds that they do struggle to eat a little bit more nutritiously and the support isn't there. I know the likes of over in the UK, Marcus Rashford, the footballer has done incredible work on that. And there, there are, there's a lot more to do on that side of things. And there's a lot more to be done in the schools and that side of stuff in relation to the education. But it's, it's, it, it can be quite difficult for people to be good. I think if you think about like fast food, it's the convenience side of things. If you think about food, like how much of a link does it have to back towards kind of like the dinosaur kind of era with the caveman, cavewoman kind of era with I'm in, I don't know where my next meal is. I'm going to eat everything. How much of an actual real impact or how much of a real link is there for that? Yeah, I mean, we can only hypothesize, but, you know, the research shows, would certainly suggest that there is a strong link because actually we see this in other animals as well, like social animals that, you know, have a picking order within the group. And, you know, you do see that the um, animals that are a bit at the bottom of the pecking order, you know, the more vulnerable animals, essentially, that they are the ones that are more likely to, you know, they, they kind of, if the opportunity is there, they will eat more food. And also their metabolism is different, so they'll store more fat as well. So it does seem like this is something that's not just like, you know, uh, unique to humans, but it's actually been a mechanism, you know, throughout evolution, really, that these, uh, that our kind of mental state and the kind of stress that we're experiencing and the feeling of vulnerability can then change, you know, through the mind-body connection, can actually change things like metabolism and hunger that will then change how likely we are to, some weight or lose weight i love that um in relation to the likes of the role of kind of like documentaries articles the media social media and the role it plays in social hysteria like and i know i've literally I, I think last night i finished the documentary on woodstock the new one with limp biscuit it's madness watch it it's absolute madness uh how much how do we watch out for that as individuals? Because I know when the nutrition ones that are out there on Netflix, um, whatever they're like the veganism or good food, bad food, whatever, I don't even know what they're called. I haven't watched them. Or what's the one, the fish one? There's one of those. Oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But like, there's a lot of them. But how do we watch out for that? And how much of a role do people have for themselves to kind of like protect themselves from that potential misinformation? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's tough because it is kind of, you know, permeates all of our, you know, culture, really, that, like, there's just so much out there in the media that kind of it tries to perpetuate, I think, a, an unhealthy attitude to food. And, you know, like, even the idea of clean eating, I always kind of rejected because, you know, it's not like, you know, it's an exaggeration to say that some foods are toxic and others are kind of clean. It's just not as clear cut as that. And actually, like, we shouldn't be looking at foods as being like poisons. It's like we actually just need to recognise, you know, what our needs are and kind of what to choose to meet our kind of fitness goals, I think, which is rather than kind of demonising whole groups of food. So, yeah, there's a huge amount there. Um, you know, it, it's tough uh, because... You know, I don't think at schools we've been taught the kind of scientific literacy to kind of make sense of, you know, what is a, a sensible diet backed by science and what is a fad diet. But I think that's really what we need more of is to be able to to kind of pick apart the evidence base. But, you know, in general, like 
my my approach is to kind of try to look, you know, has this advice been supported by, you know, good peer-reviewed studies, like a scientist actually saying this, or, you know, nutritionists who know what they're talking about, or is it, you know, a celebrity, like, I don't know, like when Beyonce went on the maple syrup diet, which I think to me seemed clearly not a good way to lose weight sustainably. Um, you know, like I love Beyonce, but like, I'm not, <laughs> I wouldn't trust her to kind of, advise me on diet necessarily so yeah I think that's what we we should be careful that we do try to follow the evidence and you know it's fine for you to try different things but I think it's also important to recognize when something just isn't working for you essentially and not to be too kind of dogmatic or puritanical like I think it's fine I think one of the dangers of some of these diets is that you know it's like there's a very restricted number of like foods that you can eat and it's almost like if you stray from that, you're kind of, you know, dirty or, you know, you're failing. But actually, you know, it's fine to just kind of veer in one direction for a while and then go in another direction if that suits you. You know, as long you can see what effect it's having on your body. And I think that's what, you know, having observing the effect yourself is like really maybe the best way to just kind of test things out. Yeah. Yeah, because I know like we were talking about the the hysteria side of things and I think when there was, I think the, there was two two examples that you gave in the book in relation to kind of in relation to illnesses. I think it's like if someone mentions or a program mentions or a radio show had mentioned, I think it was that there was an illness or a set of symptoms, the ramp up of people saying they had that illness kind of ramped up. I think particularly since we've come out of a pandemic or the other side of a pandemic, like how, like, why do people fall into that kind of like hysteria when it comes to particular like or go on to WebMD and self-diagnose and I've got an itchy head. So I definitely have, I don't know, I don't know, warts or something like that, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's loads of examples here. You yeah. know, like the recent one that's been getting the a lot of news coverage is um, people watching TikTok videos of, you know, people um, with Tourette's or, saying they've got Tourette's and then it becomes kind of contagious. So more and more people develop these tics and it's a kind of um, functional neurological disorder. So these people aren't making it up, but it's like um, it's caused by an expectation effect. Like they believe that they've caught, you know, this uh, disorder and then they start kind of manifesting that. Um, also, you know, even with uh, some food allergies like gluten intolerance, like yeah. there's absolutely no doubt that there are, you know, some people who do have an intolerance of, um, you know, gluten or some of the other kind of carbohydrates that come from wheat. Um, like, no, I'm not denying that, you know, this is a serious yeah. problem for some people, but also the, the numbers of people who are now reporting that just don't really fit with the more controlled kind of trials looking at this. So what you find with a lot of these people is you can give them a placebo food um, that doesn't contain any wheat products, but if you tell them it contains wheat, they still have the symptoms. So that is through an expectation effect. It's the, you know, mind-body connection that actually influencing things like, you know, the feeling of bloating, you know, even stuff like, um, you know, diarrhea, you know, constipation, all of that can be influenced by our mindset. So the symptoms are real, but the cause isn't what people think it is. It's caused by expectations in some cases, not by the kind of allergen itself. Um, so, yeah, it's like 
you know, like this is a huge problem. And obviously, like the more media coverage you get of these things often, you know, it helps the, these ideas to reach a bigger number of people and it becomes kind of self-perpetuating. Something like, you know, wheat intolerances uh, kind of increased by, you know, hundreds of percent over just three years in the early 2010s because of the amount of media coverage it was getting. And, and that, again, suggests that actually this is a kind of contagious expectation effect. It's not uh, necessarily that all of these people are suddenly kind of losing the ability to be able to digest wheat products. I wasn't aware of that Tourette's thing on TikTok. I'm too old for TikTok, so I don't really tend to stay away from it. Uh, can you talk about what like placebo versus nocebo effect is and what the differences are? Because there's there's a few experiments and things that you spoke about. Can you first just explain what the difference between the two is? Yeah, sure. So the placebo effect, um, I think is like fairly well accepted now. And it's this idea that um, positive expectations of a treatment can often change its outcome. Um, and we see this especially with things like um, people you know, uh, with painkillers, for example, and you can give people like a sugar pill, um, like no active ingredient, and you can tell them that it's, you know, it contains, um, you know, opioid drugs or, you know, um, you know, that it's a new kind of fancy brand of um, ibuprofen, for example. And then what you find is that, you know, their pain really does recede quite significantly. Um, but also, that the brain itself is then producing these pain-killing compounds. So the brain has its own kind of inner pharmacy of like endogenous opioids, endogenous um, cannabinoids that are then being released when you believe that you're taking a painkiller. Um, so that's the placebo effect. And it's actually, like I think, really promising for helping, say, to reduce opioid addiction in the US. Um, there's lots of trials looking at how we can use placebos honestly. So, you know, telling people they're actually receiving a placebo, but explaining these benefits. And what you find is that actually that in itself can offer clinically significant pain relief to these people. And so it could be one way of helping people to kind of empower themselves to, to wean themselves off of the addictive uh, pain-killing drugs before it becomes like a, a true addiction that's um, going to kind of have massive ramifications for their lives. Um, now, the nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect. So people often refer to it as the kind of evil twin. Uh, so in Latin, nocebo means like, I shall harm. And essentially, you know, where the placebo, you have positive expectations of improving health. Nocebo, you have negative expectations of your health getting worse. Um, and what you find is that it then can uh, create or exacerbate symptoms. And we see that with drug side effects. So if you take a pill, and you're told that the pill is going to cause headaches, um, it's more likely to cause a headache. If you're told it's going to play with your digestion, you're more likely to, you know, get bad stomach pains. Um, so, you know, that's seriously important. And with the COVID vaccines, in fact, what we found yeah. was that, you know, the vaccines, you know, did stimulate the immune system. So they did create some um, direct side effects, you know, like fever, you know, um, you know, headaches. But what we found was that actually a lot of these side effects also seem to occur in the group who were just taking the placebo injection, such so as salt water. So I think half, um, I think you, you have maybe 25% of people receiving the active vaccine who develop headaches and like 12.5% of people receiving the um, salt water injection also had headaches. So it was the expectation in that case that was causing the symptom. It's mad. I remember there was, I think it's, I think it's early on in the book, you talk about a 
case with a young woman or a girl with sight issues. Mm, Can yeah, you so talk about that a little bit more and the power behind the placebo on that side of things or the power of kind of like the mind? Yeah, so that was, um, you know, it's a pseudonym, but Sarah, who was yeah. 18 years old, um, she'd been having really bad migraines that had made her kind of sensitive to light. And then one day she just woke up and she just couldn't see. She was, you know, effectively blind. Um, but, you know, opticians and uh, doctors, they just couldn't find anything wrong with the actual her actual eyes. And they couldn't find anything wrong with the, her brain either. It's not like she had had a certain kind of brain damage that would mean that she was unable to process the um, visual experience. Instead, it seemed to be a kind of extreme nocebo response where through the expectation that built up over months that she was just less and less capable of being able to deal with light, being able to see, eventually that had kind of just shut down her visual processing despite there being no physical injury. So she... Uh, you know, would have to walk around her house by holding onto furniture, counting her steps, all of these things. She was, you know, acting like a blind person. And she, you know, her doctors very much believed in ID to do that she couldn't, she literally couldn't see despite there being no kind of physical injury. Um, the researchers did manage to treat her eventually by, uh, there was this kind of form of brain stimulation that, um, by stimulating the visual cortex, they could kind of create a visual experience. They could cause like her to see like flashes of light and that just seemed to kind of start to persuade her that you know there wasn't anything wrong with her visual system that actually it was you know she Lantrang said that it was maybe her expectations that were causing this functional neurological disorder and over you know several months then she did regain her sight um, and to me, that kind of experience, and we, we see it with lots of people, functional neurological disorders of this kind, where, you know, people's, essentially people's expectations are causing an illness. They're actually the second most common reason that people go to a neurologist. It's, you know, pretty common. Um, and they just show to me how powerful our expectations can be and how altering the prediction machine, machine's workings can actually, you know, be quite debilitating, but also as we see with things like the um, results from the placebo effect can also be very empowering as well. So they're two sides of the same coin. I'm going to bring in the skeptic hat in here. Right. <laughs> in relation to, because I know someone's going to say it, that it could be perceived as kind of wishy-washiness in relation to this expectation that we can positive think ourselves out of problems. What do you say to that side of things? And how do we kind of like, yeah, how do we how do we get our heads around that side of things? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, I think skepticism is a correct response. Because um, I think there has been a load of like rubbish, you know, written about positive expectations. Um, my problem with like previous kind of positive thinking books is that they're just a bit like without limits. Um you know, there was, you know, like a, a bit of research, you know, from 10 or 20 years ago trying to say that, you know, positive expectations could help you to, you know, cure yourself of cancer, that people who had lots of optimism were more likely to survive. And that's, you know, there's, the evidence for that was so incredibly weak. And there's also, in my opinion, there just isn't this kind of, like, plausible mechanism by which that could occur. Like, your expectations can't just shrink a tumour, like, you know, 
Um, and it's putting a lot of pressure on people. Then it's making them feel guilty. Eventually, you've received this terrible news, and then you're not being like Pollyanna and like pretending everything's fine. Um, so, you know, I think it's totally right that we should, you know, be very skeptical of any of those kinds of claims. And a lot of the expectation effects, a lot of my book is really trying to look at, well, what are the limits of this? And I would say, you know, we do know that like our expectations can have these important effects on important outcome, outcomes, and sometimes it can change our physiology. But we, you know, we just need to like actually chart, well, when does it work and when doesn't it? Just like in, in any kind of field of medicine, you don't claim that one pill is some kind of panacea for all problems. So I'm not claiming expectations are a panacea for all challenges, but just that we know that in these specific cases that it can be really useful. Um, so, you know, pain, I think, uh, in medicine, I think that has been now sufficiently proven that, you know, in my opinion, it's without doubt, potentially expectations and mindset can be incredibly important in pain management. In fitness, you know, like I mentioned, it's not going to suddenly turn you into this amazing kind of world-beating athlete just by changing your expectations. So that's the limit of what it can't do. But actually, it can change your everyday experience and it can kind of take the brakes off of your performance. So you, your progress will be quicker than it would have been if you had the, you know, negative expectations and had that kind of catastrophizing style of thinking. The same with diet. You can't just think yourself in, like just imagining yourself like, you know, dropping all of this weight, that's not going to have, that's not going to work. But actually thinking more carefully about your food and making sure that you don't create that scarcity mindset, well, that's what's beneficial. And when that's combined with suitable lifestyle changes and, you know, careful planning of your diet, well, then that's when it can be really beneficial and take the pain out of the experience too. Um, so that's my stance really, is that we have to be realistic about what it can achieve. But just because it can't, achieve miracles doesn't mean that it can't still be a really important tool for us to use to improve our lives yeah well, i have to cover both sides if you know what i mean because you, know, so, yeah. you even cover it in the book as well so it's not like you're just saying oh, yeah. this this is everything and then not covering the other side because i think and i've said it on on the podcast a few times in order to be able to kind of have an argument you need to be able to discuss both sides in order for it to be a proper argument so or discussion should i say the last one i'm going to link up with is i trained predominantly women and 51% of the population in this world are women or have cycles or have had cycles in their lives. And in relation to the link with kind of PMS and kind of the link with expectation in the stage of a cycle, this was interesting what you kind of said in the book. Can you kind of talk about this a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this was um, something I learned from Gina Rippon, a neuroscientist who's really like picking apart a lot of the kind of sexism in science around, um, you know, the way scientific research is conducted. Um, but she pointed out one study that had looked at um, the effects of like PMS and things like cognitive functioning. And, you know, like, um, and what she found was that there did seem to be an expectation effect there. So actually giving people this sham feedback about, you know, what part of the cycle they were in, um, those expectations that she created from the false expert, that scientists have created um, uh, from this kind of sham feedback, uh, that actually seemed to affect things like cognitive functioning and like um, the symptoms of PMS more than the uh, stage of the cycle itself. So you know, to, to Gina Rippon, that seemed, uh, it seemed to suggest that actually, you know, in, to, to a certain extent, like, um, you know, you can create self-fulfilling prophecies, even with that. 
Um, I would say, you know, I mean, I defer to Gina Ripon on that particular study, even though I can have no personal experience of this, obviously. Yeah. But actually, I would say it would be, it would surprise me if there was some kind of, if there was any kind of experience with a health that isn't to a greater or lesser extent shaped by expectations, because it just seems to be the way the, the brain works. You know, it is this prediction machine and it, you know, we know that it can change things that are important, subjective symptoms, sometimes objective symptoms. So it doesn't seem surprising to me that in this case too, your expectations are playing a role, even if they're not the whole picture. I think the big question, the big two words there, it's not the whole picture. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are reasons why stuff happens to the body, and, and I don't want someone to come back to this episode and say you're playing with fire here and not believing symptoms and pain and brain fog, all that kind of stuff. I'm someone from an evidence background, and so is David. So it's not that we're not believing you or whatever it is. It's just another thing that I'm trying to bring into the realm of whoever's listening to the podcast. I know there is PMS. I know there's PMDD. I know there's thyroid issues. I know there's all these different things. I'm just bringing another point of view in that could be of relevance to someone. So before someone comes down my throat, please do not come down my throat. <laughs> please yeah. do not come down David's throat and go down social hysteria again. So David, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Where can people find out about the book and can people can look at your other work of Intelligence Trap and where can people find you on social media or your website to purchase the book? Yeah, so um, uh, you can find out about me at www.davidrobson.me and that has links to, you know, different outlets that stock the book. But basically, you know, any kind of good bookseller should stock it or should be able to order a copy. Um, the publisher is Canongate and you can order a copy directly from them too. Um, you know, I love to support like independent bookshops. So, you know, websites like bookshop.org.uk, they're really great as well for, you know, uh, supporting like local businesses. Um, yeah, that's it. And for um, social media, like I'm kind of mostly on Twitter, I guess, so that's the underscore A underscore Robson. And I'm also on um, Instagram where I'm David A. Robson. Awesome. So guys, if you are interested in the book, I would highly recommend because there's so many, it's incredible studies and it's a really interesting book. You can also get an audible as well if people are looking for something to kind of, when they're out doing the workouts, they're out doing the walks, whatever, I'd highly recommend to do some interesting studies in it. But David, thank you so much for, for coming on and massive congratulations again on the book. Thanks. Yeah, it's been completely my pleasure. Thanks for the interesting conversation. If you have enjoyed the episode today with David, please do tag it up on your story. Please go and buy the amazing book, The Expectation Effect, or even David's first book, The Intelligence Trap. I love that chat with David. I know there's a lot to cover in that book and a lot to cover in that podcast episode. And I would highly recommend to listen to it again. If you have enjoyed it, please do share it with your friends. Please do share it with your family, whoever may be. And I hope you guys have enjoyed the episode. So please do leave a review up on iTunes as well. The more reviews, iTunes, more likes and shares this podcast gets, the more it will continue. We're at nearly 300 episodes and I'm looking at the list above my head on who else is coming up in the next, between now and Christmas is fully booked. Like it's mental, some of the names that are coming on. So I'm really excited to have those interviews. Looking forward to getting different ideologies that I can bring in to my own coaching, to my own life, and hopefully some of the, the, the stories and the background that people have brought in are impacting you too. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed the episode with David.